Welcome to Growth Mindset University. My name is Jordan Paris, 21-year-old author and host of this show. And with this show, you and I will embark on a journey to learn the things that we should have learned in school but did not, so that we may take control of our lives while fulfilling our visions of success. Each episode will feature a brand new lesson, and now it's time for today's lesson. So put your thinking cap on because school is now in session. When I wanted to start a podcast, I had no clue what I was doing. And I made so many mistakes along the way that I just wish I knew about earlier. I wish someone told me these things earlier. And so what I've done is I have prepared a completely free resource for everybody. It's called Podcast University. It solves for all of the unknown variables when it comes to starting your show or even taking your show to the next level. I talk about in a very, very concise manner. It's very quick to read what microphones to use, what headphones to use, what software you should use to record your remote interviews, and the microphones that you should use to record in-person interviews as well what software you should use to edit your show, what branding assets you need to take advantage of, where to host your podcast, like how do you get it on Apple and Spotify and everywhere else. I've got it all there for you on Podcast University. Again, completely free, and you can go to jordanparis.com slash P-U to get your show off the ground, take it to the next level, avoid all of the stress of figuring it out on your own. Podcasting has absolutely changed my life, and I know it will do the same for you. Now, one last thing before we get into it today, make sure that you are subscribed to the show, Growth Mindset University, wherever you are listening to this podcast. Everything we do here is to help you, to help you learn so that you can do all that you were created to do so that you can maximize your potential and who you are. As cliche as that sounds, we have interviews with New York Times bestselling authors and really just the most successful people in the world. Every single week, two times a week, we have those interviews. So we don't want you to miss it. Make sure you go do that. And now without further ado, please enjoy the show. Right, my guest today is Vanessa Van Edwards. She's a behavioral investigator and national best-selling author of Captivate: The Science of Succeeding with People. She's also a corporate speaker and body language trainer specializing in science-based people skills. And I have the book right here, Captivate, and let me tell you, this book when I read it a year and a half ago, absolutely changed my life. I was an inept, a socially inept human being. No way. And this is the book. This is the book that I credit every, like, I always, I I say, this is the reason I talk. (laughs) (laughs) So Vanessa, thank you. Like Um, it, it changed everything for me. You're not giving yourself enough credit, but I'm so grateful and I'm so happy to be here. 
Well, it's uh, it's a it's an absolute pleasure. What was your college major? Did you study any of this stuff that you're studying now in college? Yeah, I studied sociology and psychology. I also was a Chinese major because I thought I was going to go into international business. I really wanted to do the State Department. Um, so yeah, and I, I actually wrote my thesis for sociology. What were your potential career paths then after college? Like you're doing research now and, you know, you're performing these studies. Like why didn't you just become a teacher and have these studies be funded? Yeah, I really, I actually was more on the political path. I thought I was going to go into the State Department. I thought I really wanted to travel and work for the government. And then um, I did a bunch of informational interviews, I think my senior year of college. And I actually studied abroad in China. That's where I met my husband. And um, he was also on a very similar path. And I did a bunch of informational interviews. And I realized if I continued on my track, it would be very hard to have a family. I would always be gone. And um, I would never be in one place. And I thought, you know, I don't want to set myself up for that kind of life. I knew one day I wanted to be a mom. And so um, that made me think more strategically about business. And interestingly, my mom, I love my mom's a, a lawyer. And so she's always been paid by the hour. And she said to me, you know, I, I, I like being a lawyer, but I don't love being a lawyer. And if I had one wish for you, I would wish that you don't have to be paid by the hour because it means you always have to be on. And that was interesting because her generation had been taught, you know, be an accountant, a lawyer, or a doctor. That's it. Those are your choices. And um, so she wanted to give me different choices. And she signed me up for a a seminar that changed my life. It was a three-day conference. It was a rich dad, poor dad seminar on uh, passive income, of all things. And it was the first time that I had ever considered something totally different. I I took that my senior year of college and decided, you know what, maybe I'll try this entrepreneur thing. Fantastic. Wow. So science of people, I've always thought that that just really is what attracted me to your work in the beginning. When I heard science of people, I was like, oh, this is for me. And your website is scienceofpeople.com. Where did that phrase first pop into your head? Well, I always loved human behavior. I loved relationships. I loved communication. And of course, I grew up reading How to Win Friends and Influence People, basically every Dale Carnegie book I could get my hands on. And I liked those books, but I always wondered if there was more than just one person's opinion, right? Dale Carnegie was brilliant and he was a wonderful writer, a wonderful speaker. But I wondered, you know, is there is there other opinion here? Is there more data to this? Especially because I felt like Dale Carnegie was an extrovert. Now, we can't ask him, but I'm pretty sure he was already pretty oriented towards people. As an ambivert, especially a recovering awkward ambivert, I wanted to have a different perspective. I wanted to know what the science said from introverts, ambiverts, and extroverts. And most people skills books are written by extroverts. And I was like, where where can we get a varied opinion of different genders, of different people? And so that's when I started to look at the science, and then hence the science of people was born. Wow, yeah. You always have this study. Like you, you know, I love how you always reference research and studies in, whenever, you know, I've listened. By the way, I've listened to every podcast interview of yours, not once, but twice. Like, oh no, (laughs) like a a year and a half ago, I went and listened to them all. Like, I did the same with Jordan Harbinger. He's been on a lot. I did 
He's the best. Thing, yeah, he's he's coming on the show in like a couple of months. But say say hi for me and tell him um, I really like that inside joke. And let's see what he let's see if he can remember what it is. Okay, I'm writing it down. Inside joke, Jordan. Okay. And then ask him to ask him to tell the story. Tell the. So everyone story. listening to this has to listen to that interview too. <laughs> yeah, that, that I think it's like it's like we're performing the interview on August 6th. But stay tuned, stay tuned. Anyway. <laughs> Gosh, where was I? Oh yeah, your favorite, your favorite study. Like, what is your favorite one right now that you're hooked on? Gosh, okay, it's not. It's I'm gonna since you've listened to so many interviews, I'm gonna pick one that I never talk about, which I think is really interesting. I don't think I've ever talked about this on a podcast, but it's definitely on my mind. I'm very obsessed with the microbiome which is, you know, our gut bacteria, but you didn't expect me to say that. Um, no. <laughs> I'm, I'm obsessed with our gut bacteria. And the reason for this is because I've always been interested in healthy eating and all that stuff. But where I'm really interested in it is that they have found there are links between our personality and our gut. And so I talk a lot about the brain. I'm constantly referencing brain studies. I think the future of my work and personality science and communication science and relationship science is actually gut health. And the reason for this is my favorite study. I just think this is the grossest, coolest thing. Researchers were wondering if our gut has to do with our personality. And so what they did is they took extroverted mice. Yes, there is such a thing as extroverted mice. Oh, gosh. Um, extroverted mice are obviously very social. They like to be around the other mice. They do a lot of grooming other mice. They like to play with other mice. They're very extroverted. And then there are introverted mice. Yes, really. Introverted mice um, like to be by themselves. They hang out in the corner. <laughs> they don't do a lot of grooming. Um, they don't like wrestling and those kind of things, playing other mice. Okay, so they took introverted mice, extroverted mice, and they did fecal transplants. So fecal transplant is exactly what you think it is. They took poop from one extroverted mice and they put it in the other, the stomach of an introverted mouse, and they took introverted poop and they put it in an extroverted mouse. Sure enough, they found that after they did the fecal transplant, the extroverted mice became introverted and the introverted mice became extroverted, which blows my mind. First of all, cannot believe they're extroverted mice. Second of all, it indicates that our gut health could influence our confidence. And if you think about this logically, it begins to make more sense is your human as a human your health obviously is a major part of your confidence. If you don't feel well, you're not going to want to go out. You're not going to want to be social. And so I think there might be something too. The better you digest your food, the more efficient you are digesting your food, the healthier you are, the more confident you are, the more extroverted you become. So it hints at some really interesting studies, I think, to come down the, down the line on um, our personality might be as simple as taking a pill. Yeah. I mean, I always make sure that I take, I mean, I, I took it five minutes before we got on here. It was my, um, what's it called? The, uh, gosh, why am I drawing a blank? Uh, the, Prebiotic. Prebiotic. Yeah. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> Prebiotics, probiotics. I take those every single day. I've been doing I got so mine right here. Do you hear them? Oh, Let's man. <laughs> That's my pills. Awesome. Awesome. Super healthy. I mean, like, I used to take a whole host of things, but I just cut it down to two things, fish oil, probiotics. Like mm-hmm. that's it. Some of the most healthy stuff out there, keeping it simple. You know, my, totally you, believe should, in it. you should also take um, a prenatal. I've heard prenatals are like some of the best vitamins on the market. So even uh, if my, my dad actually takes prenatals and he says it's the reason he's so healthy. 
noted in the notes here. <laughs> so your now your TED Talk research has also influenced me as well. I mean, whenever I'm speaking, I use I mean, I use a lot of gestures and I get very animated and and it, I feel like it makes I feel like it makes my you know, it 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 brings out in my voice as well, the best in my voice just using my hands. Mm-hmm. And so when yes. you so tell me about your te- the the TED Talk research fill in the gaps for the listener here, but how much is too much hand gestures if there is such a thing? Yeah, so hands are really um, I think underdeveloped part of nonverbal. I think when when people hear about nonverbal behavior, they think make eye contact, have good posture, and give a handshake. Those are typically the three things we hear all the time, right? Every magazine article in the mental body language, they mention those three things. Hand gestures, though, are very different than a handshake. A handshake is how you start your interaction, but a hand gesture is how you explain your concepts, how you storytell. If you're really good at nonverbal, it's also how you greet someone. You actually greet someone with your hand before you even shake their hand, right? Where we do a wave, we do a nod, we do acknowledgement. Um, so our, our hands are really important. And um, I always knew this because of research by Susan Goldwyn Meadow. So Susan Goldwyn Meadow is a great researcher. She has an entire book on hand gestures, if you can believe it. Um, and she has found all these loops, these, these loops with gestures that hand gestures lightens your cognitive load as you're thinking. So if you're explaining a story and I ask you to sit on your hands, it's actually harder for you to tell the story while not being able to use your hands. That's a very interesting finding. Why is it that our hands actually help us ourselves communicate. They all, she also found that hand gestures lightens your listener's cognitive load. So if I'm sharing a story and you can see my hand gestures, it actually helps you think less or less, I should say, it makes your thinking easier um, when you're trying to understand me. It's because you're getting my story on two different tracks. So I always knew about this research. I taught this research and I accidentally stumbled upon another facet of the research when I was doing research on TED Talks, as you mentioned. This this research actually got me my own TED Talk, which was great. Um, and I was it started because I watch a TED Talk every day at lunch, or I try to, some kind of educational video when I'm eating lunch. And I was on the TED website and I searched leadership into the search bar. And up popped two talks. One you've probably heard of. It's by Simon Sinek. Have you watched that talk? Of course, many times. Okay. So, yep, that talk had, I think at the time, 40 million plus views. And the next talk that came up was by Fields Wicker Murin. Have you read that? Have you watched that talk? Only because you have mentioned it. That's It's, like, it's good, because, right? Yeah, yeah. It it's good. It, it's a good talk and it has a very similar title. Back in the day, I think they both were titled something like uh, The Why of Leadership or Why Leadership Matters. I mean, very similar titles. They both were released on the TED website the same month of the same year, September of 2009. They both were about 18 minutes long. And I thought that was such an interesting comparison. Both of those experts were experts in their field and unknown before their TED Talks. Simon Sinek was not well known before his TED Talk, but somehow one TED Talk went viral and it made me think, I wonder if there's any interesting data here. So we took um, all the TED Talks from 2010 and we decided to do a big research study on them. So I had our coders watch and begin to 
rank and rate every TED Talk with a couple of different variables. We looked at hand gestures. We looked at smiling. We actually clocked the number of seconds smiled. We looked at uh, gender. We looked at clothing color. We looked at all these different variables, seeing if we could find a difference. And then we sorted them by view count. View count is a really simple way to look at most popular versus least popular. And we found that if you took the top 10 TED Talks from 2010 and the bottom 10 TED Talks from 2010, there was a distinct difference in hand gestures. The top TED speakers used an average of 465 hand gestures in 18 minutes, whereas the least popular TED Talkers used an average of 272 gestures in 18 minutes. This is a huge, huge difference. And I realized that what was happening was I think that the TED speakers who speak with their hands are lightening the cognitive load of their viewers and making it easier, literally, for them to be understood. They're also showing their viewers, I know my content so well that I can speak to you with my hands and my words. And I'll add in here, and I haven't mentioned this before in other podcasts, but I think you might find it interesting. I also felt like the editing of the TED Talk handicapped the TED speaker. And I noticed that on a lot of the least viewed TED Talks, they were from the same locations because they had the same video editors. And those video editors were cropping either on their face, they cropped out their hand gestures, or were showing too much of the slides. That is very interesting. It makes a lot of sense. What about like fake it till you make it though? Like we hear, so like moving on, you know, we hear this you know, it's common, common advice. And, you know, I, I mean, I, you know, I've been, I've been told it by even family members, like fake it till you make it. And like, does that, does that hurt you or help you in social situations? Like pretending to be confident when you're not, or pretending, just pretending to be something you're not. I think that fake it till you make it had its moment, right? There was like a year or two there where everyone was talking about fake it till you make it. Um, And it never resonated well with me. And I think there are two reasons for this. One is I didn't like the idea of thinking, fake it, fake it, fake it, fake it, right? I'm very, I think that words we use are very powerful and walking around saying to yourself, fake it, fake it, fake it. It's just not, I think it's not a great mantra. I would much rather have you say, be confident or you're powerful or you're strong or you got this, right? So just on a pure like gut instinct, I never liked that mantra. And second is I know that there is really interesting research on fake it till you make it. So one of the research experiments I share in the book is by Barbara Wild. And Barbara Wild wanted to look at fake smiles versus real smiles. And she not only wanted to know if people liked those people better, but she actually wanted to know if it changed the viewer's emotion. And what she found was that when people look at a fake smile, so fake it till you make it, if someone says, you know what, I'm gonna fake being happy and hope that I feel happy. If you walk into a networking event with a fake smile plastered on your face, Barbara Wilde found that you don't have any emotional response in the people you're talking to. You kind of come across as neutral. You're going to be way less memorable. Whereas when we look at people with real smiles, even if we can't consciously tell you the difference between the fake and the real smile, the real smile makes us feel more positive. So I would much rather have you figure out how can you get yourself into a better mood before walking into an event or not going to the event at all because you're much better off going in with a real smile because that's actually going to leave a physical, physiological, positive first impression as opposed to walking around with a fake smile and hoping you feel happy and hoping other people will get some kind of positive reaction from it. Absolutely. Now let's talk, let's make this actionable. Let's make how, how to make a powerful first impression. Uh, you know, like 
using say conversation sparkers. I mean, I'll tell you, you know, I've taken your, I'm a recovering awkward person from your book. And I like, I kind of just say that to people yeah. that is, and they'd like laugh and, or they say me too. Like I even did it with Mark Manson when yeah. we first started talking and he's like, me too. Yeah. <laughs> and yep. he's like, like yourself, I'm a recovering awkward person. And, and uh, it, it's, I've found that to be very positive. What are some other ways to make that first impression? Some other conversation sparkers uh, or what have you? Well, I think that part of this is a mentality. And I say that because I think that if you go into uh, interaction with a certain kind of energy, that energy is contagious. And they're finding that in all kinds of ways. Not only our facial expressions, people picking up emotions for facial expressions, but also even our pheromones, people picking up on those. And so one of the best ways I think to make a positive first impression is to go in as if you're about to see an old friend. The reason for that is because I don't want you to pretend that you're actually friends with someone you're not friends with. Cause that's also again, getting close to fake it till you make it. And also you're not friends with them. So you don't know them, but I want you to think about as if you were going to go meet an old friend, the kind of excitement that comes in that you want to catch up with them. You want to get to know them. You want to see what's been happening. There's already a kind of familiarity and warmth there. I like to assume warmth. So instead of faking it till you make it, it's more giving someone the benefit of the doubt. That's a very slight but powerful reframe on fake it till you make it. If you assume warmth or assume closeness or assume the best in someone, you're much more likely to A, have better interaction, but also B, have them rise to the occasion. So when I, for example, uh, very specifically, when I first met Jordan Harbinger, Jordan and I had been emailing back and forth. We are in the same industry. We've been in a lot of the same podcasts. I didn't know him, but I did have a little bit of a digital interaction with him. And so I went in like he, I was seeing an old friend because we do know each other. And he said to me after we um, had our first impression, you know, we, we get hugged. We said, how are you? He goes, oh man, like that was a really great meeting. Like I feel like refreshed. And I, I think that's because I assumed that we would get along and we did. Oh, right, right, right. Now, you know, one of your conversation sparkers that I use from time to time is, you know, anything new and exciting you're working on. And of course, the idea behind that, you know, your brain, the other person's brain searches for hits for new and exciting, like the most exciting things in their life. Is there anything, though, because there are some settings where I don't use that on purpose because it's a little bit too professional for certain settings and certain people. Is there anything, a conversation sparker that is less professional? Well, I think that what's the one that you don't use? Repeat it to me one more time. Anything new and exciting that you're working on. I use I use that, but only in like more professional settings with more professional people. Right. So that is actually you can take that same that same wording and just change one word out. So it's the difference between working on anything exciting recently or doing anything exciting recently. Oh, wow. <laughs> so yeah. Simple. Yeah. So it's just one word change. And that one word change will get a very, very different response from the same person. Gotcha. All right. So Vanessa, we're going to talk about a pain point for me. And I know many other people have certain pain points as well. You talk about survive environments versus thrive environments. So if the bar, like, you know, is, is an absolute... <laughs> survive environment, which it is for me. I I still, I still 
you know, I, I've I've walked away from the bar many times in my life with tears in my eyes just because oh. I feel because I feel like a social reject. I, you know, the music's too loud. It's a it's a barrier to communication, and I just feel crushed, man. Like, <laughs> I know, I yeah. Know. So, is there any hope at all? Can you turn a survive environment into a thrive environment? So. The only way I've been able to do this, because they're, again, I'm very similar to you. Bars are survive environments for me. Nightclubs are survive environments for me. Um, I'll give you another very specific example. Um, weddings where I'm up in, either in the wedding. I, I'm in a lot of weddings. We're invited to a lot of weddings, which I'm very blessed for. We have a lot of wonderful friends. But I will tell you, I've been to over 50 weddings in the last probably three years. And I've been in a lot of those weddings. I've had family getting married. Those are also survive environments for me. And I had to figure out a way to make them work. And I, the one way that I've been able to do this is, and you have to figure out what this is for you because everyone's slightly different, is trying to be as helpful as possible. So I had a, a wedding that I, a cousin was getting married. I have a lot of cousins. Hopefully if they're listening, they won't know who they are. I had a cousin getting married and um, I was a little anxious about the wedding because I knew it was going to be a very, very long weekend with a lot of family time, a lot of like uh, that schmoozing that doesn't mean anything with people you kind of know and you should know their name, but you don't really remember it. And you run out of things to talk about within three minutes. It was going to be that all weekend long and very, very busy, long, long days. And so I thought, you know what? The only way I'm going to survive this is if I actually have jobs to do. I do better when I have a job to do. It's the same thing in a bar or a nightclub. I like jobs to do. If I find that if I'm like mindlessly like walking around trying to think of things to talk about, I just don't do as well. I do much better with purpose. So I always think, what's the job to be done? Is there any job to be done? So at this wedding, I tried to make myself as helpful as possible. Specifically, I'm very, very good at doing makeup. So I offered to do a ton of guest makeup, even guests that weren't in the wedding. I brought all my makeup into one of the guest bathrooms and I said, Hey, I'm setting up shop. I'm doing makeup all day long. Come on in and we can chat and catch up. And it was a game changer. First of all, it allowed me to not be in any of the schmoozing kind of, um, uh, party, big open rooms. I had my own little guest bathroom that was specifically reserved for me. I didn't have to do chit chat because I actually had someone in a chair for 20 minutes. So for 20 minutes, I got to actually talk to them, talk to them about their life, talk to them about what was happening. It was nice and quiet. We shut the door when someone came in and I had like about maybe 10 or 12 amazing conversations. That's about how many people's makeup I did. And I avoided both days, like the rehearsal dinner and the wedding day. So I found a job to be done that worked for me and it put me in a location that also worked. So I would say, is there something that you could do? Is there a job to be done? Is there something you could do in a bar or a nightclub or a conference that makes you feel less anxious that gives you some kind of purpose. That's very helpful because I'm actually going to my first wedding in I think, uh, what's it? 10 days from now. Uh-huh. So, yeah, right, right. So I'm going to have to figure out a way there. And it's funny because I've kind of been doing this subconsciously. I realized as you were talking back when I used to go to college parties, I don't, I don't really do that anymore. Um, obviously I don't, but, um, I would, you know, since it's the same sort of thing as a bar, like it's very loud and, and it's very crowded and it's just very intimidating. I would actually go 
out front and like work the door. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it'd be like with one other person and they'd be one on one. And I always say, like, throw me anywhere with one other person and like there will not be a second of dead air in two hours. So like I can do that, you know? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that that's a good that's a good story. Actually, um, it reminds me, uh, my friend Barrett, I don't know if he's listening. My friend Barrett is uh, wonderful. And he's also kind of an ambivert. And he, what he does at every single house party. So my friends, we do a lot of house parties with maybe like an average of 20 to 50 people that, you know, couples usually, and there's usually a dance room, a food room, and kind of like an outdoor patio area. And what he does in these situations the entire night is he just plays DJ. So he walks over, no matter whose house it is, he walks over to the sound system. He takes out his phone, he plugs in his phone and he, the entire night he plays DJ. And for him, that is like his happy place. He will come over and mention him. He doesn't really want to talk to you. He doesn't really want to make small talk. So he just, he sits right next to the really loud music (laughs) and you can't really talk to him, but you can come up and make song requests. So say, Hey, how are you? What's your song request? Here's my song request. Okay. Bye. Get me a drink. Thanks. And it's like, it works for him. We all know that's his job. And that's how he's learned to have a really good time at these parties. Smart. Yeah. And, you know, another another very helpful thing to know is social zones. I'm going to leave that as you're going to, you know, the listener is going to need to get the book to learn about <laughs> social zones. We're going to, because we're yes, going to have please. to skip. Yeah. So you're going to, the social zones are extremely helpful in navigating whatever setting you are in, uh, you know, there's, a, there's literally a whole map in this book. That was fun. I had fun making, I, I actually made that graphic um, on Keynote with slides and, and um, like little animations. And it was really fun because I felt like I was a football coach kind of, you know, d- di- dividing up a field. Very cool. So, so another one of my favorite concepts from the book that I always try my best with is highlighting other people, being a highlighter like highlighting their gifts. And I mean, I forget like the whole reason. I mean, cause I mean, if you highlight someone and make them feel good, I mean, they're going to like you. Uh, people will not, you know, they're not going to always remember exactly what you said, but how they made you feel, how you made them feel. So how does one become a better, better for at searching for the good while listening to others speak so that we can be better highlighters? Well, this comes from a really classic um, mythology, which is on Pygmalion. It's called the Pygmalion effect. So Pygmalion, if you know the Greek myth, is um, he was making a sculpture of the perfect woman and he sculpted this perfect woman. And uh, when the sculpture was done, he kissed her, he kissed the sculpture and the sculpture came to life. And it's this mythology that you actually create the best in people. So he crafted what he thought of as the perfect woman, and then therefore she came to life. And so the idea here is what researchers have found is true, is that if you expect someone to be really smart and you help create them as really smart, they actually rise to the occasion. If you expect them to be um, kind and create circumstances where they can be kind, they will be very kind. And they've replicated this with so many different groups. So for example, if you tell average donors, if you're a nonprofit and you tell average donors, they are in fact above average donors, they will then become above average donors. If you tell students who are regular performing students, normal test scores, they actually, their tests scored higher than other students. The next round of tests will actually score higher than other students. In other words, if you give people high expectation, they often live up to it. And this is very, very different from how I was raised. I was raised 
basically with going with no expectations. If you go in with no expectations, you won't be disappointed. If you go in with no expectations, um, no one will uh, let you down. And so when I read this set of studies on the Pygmalion effect, first of all, I thought, oh my gosh, how have I never seen this or heard of this before? And second, this is so counter to the pessimistic worldview or the go in neutral so you can't get hurt and the ambivalence and the apathy that I think so pervades our culture right now, that ambivalence and being apathetic and not caring too much protects you. That kind of keeps a shield up. And it gave me a reason, a scientific reason to say, you know what? I don't need a shield. I would much rather be positive and expect the best and have people live up to that than go in expecting nothing or being like acting like I don't care and then having the worst happen. Makes sense. And you mentioned a little bit, you know, bringing out the best in people, skill solicitation, another concept in the book. And so as we begin to wrap up here, how does someone just become more well-liked? Uh, the e- this is easy. This is an easy one. And it's a question that plagues people. They think, I want to be more likable. I want more people to like me. There is one very simple way to get you more likable. And the science says this. So Van Sloan studied thousands of students, high school students, and looked at popularity patterns. And he found the most popular students weren't the most athletic. They weren't the most attractive. They simply liked the most other students. In other words, if you want more people to like you, you should go like more people. And that fits in exactly what we're saying with expecting the best from people. If you go to a party saying, I want to like everyone here, you are more likely to be likable. And that's a very different mindset. Most people go into a party thinking, I want to impress people. I want to find the right people. I want to meet the VIP. I want to influence people. But if you just going in, go in thinking, every person I meet, I want to find reasons to like them. That is such a different mindset and it will actually help you be more likable as well. Absolutely. Captivate the science of succeeding with people, a must read book. Now, Vanessa, just leave us with an experiment. I've asked this to Mark Bowden, Chase Hughes, all the behavior experts that I that I have on the show. Leave us with an experiment and where we can find you, where else you'd like to direct people. The experiment I would assign you is... Um, over the next seven days, pretend or assume that there is something that you have in common with every person you meet. It's not just something, it's actually um, uh, something that you love and you both love it and you both have it in common. I want you to assume that there is something that you both have in common with every person you talk to, every person you meet, even people you already know, and that your job is to find out what that thing is. And see how your conversations change. See how your feelings change. Assuming and trying to find that thing that you have in common. Because I guarantee you, you will find something and it will probably change your conversations as well. And where else would you like people to learn more about you? So scienceofpeople.com is where we have everything, our lab. We also have a really active YouTube channel. So uh, go check us out on those two places. Vanessa Van Edwards, you have absolutely changed my life. And you've done it for so many others I know as well. Thank you very much. My pleasure. I'm so, so happy to be here. There you have it, my friends. This has been another episode of the Growth Mindset University. 
podcast. Now, if you enjoyed this one today, there are a couple of ways that you can give back. The first is, of course, to leave an honest rating and review in Apple Podcasts or iTunes. You can also take a screenshot of this and share it out on your Instagram story and tag me at j underscore Paris underscore and tag our guest as well. And we will absolutely give you some love. And then, of course, if you want to start your own podcast, a podcast like this or any other podcast that you envision, you can go to jordanparis.com slash PU to get free access to Podcast University. All right. I love you all so very much. And until next time, my friends, make every day count, live to learn, and grow to give.